Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. If you would, join me in a spirit and attitude of prayer. Yes, God, we gather today with Thanksgiving on our hearts. We are reminded that uh, Thanksgiving is not just a national holiday, but it is a way of life for us as Christians, that you have wired us to practice gratitude. And so we come each Sunday with Thanksgiving in our hearts, giving thanks for all you have done to care for us and love us, for all you have done to shape our church and to shape our community. We pray in this holy season that we would set our minds on you and on the blessings that come from above, and that we'd be reminded to live lives marked by, by gratitude, uh, knowing each day that you care for and guide us. Today we give thanks for the opportunity to be called forth to this place, to share in this hour of worship, to share in song and fellowship, to make our gifts and our tithes, and to now gather around the sacred words of Scripture. May you speak through all of these elements of worship to shape us and reshape us according to your will. These things in Christ's name we pray, and let us say together, Amen. Amen. Do you guys ever think about dying? Do you guys ever think about dying? I was reading an essay a couple of weeks ago in Christian Century. That's kind of a nerdy pastor magazine. Yes, we have those. And I was reading that essay a couple of weeks ago, and I was surprised as I was flipping through uh, that there was this essay drawing attention to the recent Barbie movie because of its deep theological reflections. What? And I thought, this can't be right, but I made a mental note. Oh, Barbie, theological reflections, maybe I should return to that. And so this week, in the spirit of dedicated sermon preparation and, and the hard work that I put in, I set aside two hours to watch the Barbie movie, all right? And I streamed it on Amazon Prime. Uh, we did not watch it when it came to the theater, but I am now fully acquainted with the film. Wow, it is so good. Have you seen it? Just a show of hands, some of you seen it? Wow, it is not the movie I thought it was going to be. I thought it was a silly movie. It's a movie about toys, right? Or I thought it was a children's movie, maybe like Toy Story or something. That's not it at all. It's like a, a super adult movie with reflections on life and death and relationships and gender and how all those things work together, right? I encourage you, if you've got some time this week, to check out the Barbie movie. If you haven't seen it, I'll give you just a real quick, <coughs> a real quick summary of the plot. So the Barbies and the Kens are in Barbie land. Everything is plastic and perfect, right? And so we meet prototypical Barbie along with the other Barbies, the Dr. Barbies, the Judge Barbies, the President Barbie, and they're just living their glorious plastic perfect life. Uh, the Kens are there as well. They have less aspirations, uh, but they're also happy. They spend a lot of time surfing and listening to music and whatnot. And so it's all good, and they're gathered there for one of their nightly parties. The music is playing. They're dancing. Everyone's happy. And prototypical Barbie says out, loud do you guys ever think about dying and when prototypical barbie says that the music stops everyone gasps in silence they look at her like something's wrong and she quickly apologizes oh i'm so sorry i'll i'll never talk about death again right and so they continue on with their party now, it is a little bit like Toy Story. Uh, there's, there's kind of two worlds existing at once. There's the world of the Barbies and Kins that they live in and know, and then there's the world where the people are playing with them. And so it's kind of a, a time-space continuum issue, and they kind of jump back and forth between them. Eventually, Barbie and Ken end up in the real world. Hijinks ensue as they try to navigate the real world. They learn all sorts of weird lessons about reality. Finally, prototypical Barbie meets the woman who has been playing with her. And I say woman because it's a middle-aged mother who now has a teenage daughter who no longer plays with her Barbies. 
And this middle-aged woman is facing a little bit of a, a midlife crisis. In fact, she says she's, she's got irrepressible thoughts of death. And so she's been thinking about death and playing with prototypical Barbie, and those feelings and those reflections have somehow shaped the dream world. It's pretty neat movie and it's pretty thoughtful. There are some very funny lines and funny scenes and there's some throwbacks to the toys that people who played with those toys will remember and appreciate it, but under the surface are some, some deep questions, including do you ever think about dying? And so prototypical Barbie begins this journey of wrestling with what does it mean to have a real life versus a toy life? What are the things we might learn in the real world that we can't learn in the toy world? What are the things we might miss about the toy world if we're in the real world? She eventually meets the person who created Barbie, and, and the person who created Barbie says, you were always supposed to want to know the truth. It's a pretty good line, a pretty heavy theological line. You're always supposed to want to know the truth, implying even when you think about dying. So I wonder, do you guys ever think about dying? We've been reading, this will be the last Sunday from 1 Thessalonians, and every week I've told you these same things, so I'm going to tell you them again today. Uh, this series was meant to be a little bit of a teaching series around the book 1 Thessalonians, not necessarily a real popular book when we think about the letters in the New Testament. What's unique about 1 Thessalonians, again, I've said this every week, but we think it's the oldest of the books that we have in the Bible, I mean the New Testament. And so A.D. 50, we're talking about 20 years after Jesus' ministry, and so it's a really early look into the first Christian communities, the first churches, right? What were the very first things that Christians were wrestling with as they learned to follow Jesus? So when we read from Thessalonians, we're talking about Paul's second missionary journey, which is recorded in Acts 17. There's only five verses in Acts 17 about the, the stop in Thessalonica, um, but there Paul raises interest in Christianity. He converts some new believers and then quickly goes on his way. And so this new Christian community, without a, without a church as we know it, without a hymnal, without the Bible, without any of the things that we sort of take for granted, this new Christian community in Thessalonica as well as in other cities begins to take shape and take form. And so when we read Paul's letters, including the letter Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, we're reading Paul writing back to those churches and presumably offering words of encouragement, instruction, and sometimes answering some difficult questions. And so that's what we're dealing with a little bit today. When we talk about 1 Thessalonians, the verses that Kyle just read are by far the most popular. As I told you, 1 Thessalonians doesn't get as much billing as Romans or Corinthians letters or Galatians or Ephesians, but when people talk about 1 Thessalonians, they're almost always talking about chapter 4 and some parts of chapter 5. What appears to be the case is that Paul journeyed there, helped to start the church. People have begun to believe and worship Jesus. Paul has ministered in other places. And, and time has begun to pass, right? And maybe those early believers, maybe even Paul himself, were under the impression that Jesus would return really quickly, right? Like within months or a year of his resurrection and his ascension, that Jesus' final victory was coming soon, very soon, and so you ought to be prepared. Well, now some time has passed, and maybe Jesus hasn't returned as quickly as they thought, and so they began to have some questions including questions about dying. Do you guys ever think about dying? It appears to be that the church in Thessalonica is thinking about dying. Specifically, they're thinking about those people who have already died. What about the people who have already died, the people who are a part of our church, a part of our, our faith community, believing and worshiping Jesus? Jesus hasn't yet returned, and yet these people have died. Where are they now? Right? What happened to those people who have died? 
Well, Paul seems to say real clearly that he's writing in this part of the letter in response to this question, right? I don't want you to be uninformed. So I'm going to outline to you what happens to people who die and what we can expect for the future. This is usually a pretty, uh, a pretty significant interest to people, so I invite you uh, to join Barbie and myself and Paul in wrestling a little bit today and thinking about what happens when we die. So we'll look at it in a couple of sections. The first section is this. Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died. That seems to be the question that he's answering. What happens to those who have died? So that you may not grieve as others who, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus de- was de- died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have died. So the first thing I want to just note and celebrate with you is sort of Paul's pastoral sensitivity, right? Because it would be easy, and perhaps the church has sometimes done this, it would be easy to jump straight to the teaching and to the preaching and to the mechanics of, of salvation and, and the hope for the future. I mean, it would be obvious to kind of go in that direction but the first thing that Paul says is uh, we don't want you to be uninformed it's okay that you're grieving we just don't want you to grieve without hope I like that line right because Paul even in the ancient world even as driven as Paul was and, and, and such a important teacher he acknowledges that there's grief and loss and all of us know this to be true whether we've lost loved ones like grandparents or parents whether we've uh, had, to, had to say goodbye to a spouse, or, or worse, you know, we've had to say goodbye to a child, or even just friends. Uh, we know that when we lose a loved one, there's grief. And so I appreciate that Paul here is acknowledging that, that grief is real, right? Just because you're a person of faith, just because you have hope in Jesus Christ and the resurrection, doesn't mean that you don't also have grief when you lose someone you love. Uh, being in the, the pastoral position, I often get to, to talk with people about their grief. In fact, there's kind of a pattern to it for me. I mean, I do the, the funeral planning meeting pretty often, and so families come in, and we, we talk about the mechanics of the funeral, the service, where is it going to be, who's going to speak, what songs, what scriptures, uh, how do we need to plan for a meal or for the burial, you know, all those things. And then we shift gears, and, and we talk about how, how are you doing. And I often tell them that I understand those first few days are really chaotic because you've been shocked with the grief and with the loss, And then you've been launched into the the dealing with the consequences of that loss. And that involves some legal issues. It involves funeral planning. Lots of questions you have to answer really quickly that maybe you weren't prepared to deal with. And so those first few days when someone loses a loved one, they they can be on a little bit of a roller coaster. I usually give them a copy of this book. Denise keeps copies in the office. When someone u- loses a loved one, we, we offer them this book by Granger Westberg, Good Grief. It's not, a, it's not a long book. It's a short book, and it's, it's been around for like 50 years. It's not, a, it's not a new, insightful book. It's just a classic sort of teaching about the stages of grief. And, of course, Westbergs aren't unique or perfect. There are other teachings. They sometimes go in different order. The point is just to acknowledge when we go through grief, we experience things like this, shock, Emotional loss, depression, physical distress, panic, guilt, anger, resistance. And hopefully, eventually, we we move towards some hope and to some acceptance. So I would just offer that word to you all this morning as well, right? Just because we're people of faith, just because we're Christians, just because we have confidence in God's love and care doesn't mean that we can't also grieve. And there's, there's healthy and there's unhealthy ways of grief and, and there's different ways in which it comes to us and sometimes it's hard and fast, sometimes it's kind of stretched out over a long time. That's all, it's all okay. And if you need help processing your grief, you're certainly welcome to talk to me or we might find a counselor that would be helpful to you as well. But Paul doesn't stop there, right? He says, uh, we hope that you do not grieve uh, without hope, without hope. 
And he says that the reason we have hope is that we know this, that second verse, verse 14. We believe Jesus died and rose again, and through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. So this is the, the first indication about where Paul is going, right? Those who have died, those who came before us, they will come with Jesus, right? They will come with Jesus. And so here Paul begins to offer a little bit of a seed, a little bit of an indication of where this teaching is going, right? That those who have come before us are now bound up with Jesus, and whenever we see Jesus again, we will see them as well. That's good news, right? Because it means when we lose a loved one, we don't just lose them sort of permanently. It's not that death is a permanent loss. It's not that the, the richness of the relationships we knew in this life have been, have been shattered and destroyed. It means when we lose a loved one, there's sort of a, a temporary distance set between them and us. But as Paul sees it, we will one day be reunited, right? That when we see Jesus, we will be gathered up with those who came before us. I can't help but think here of the, of the wonderful sort of the southern sing-along, uh, will, the, will the circle be unbroken, right? Will the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by? That's sort of the image here for Paul, right? That we're united together in this life, but we're also united in death, and then we will be reunited on the other side of death when we come to see Jesus again. And therefore we grieve, but we grieve with hope. We grieve with hope. All right, the next section is the part that people are most interested in, right? For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with the cry of a command, with the archangel's call, and the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds with them in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever. People love these verses, right? We love the opportunity to think and dream and visualize what it will be like when Christ comes in final victory. And so when I say that this part of 1 Thessalonians is the most popular, this, this is the section that I mean. So let's break down a little bit of what Paul is describing here uh, and sort of the mechanics of it. The first word that you should be familiar with is the word uh, sleep. The Greek New Testament, as well as some other English translations, when it describes those who have died, it describes those who are asleep, right? Which I think is a, is a kind of a helpful metaphor, a helpful analogy, right? Those who are asleep in death, those who have moved from this life to the next life are asleep in death. That doesn't mean that they're being asleep, doesn't mean that they don't have some sense of coherency of what God is doing or they're not engaged with God in some way. Famously, of course, we look to Luke 23 when Jesus is on the cross in his final moments and he's in conversation with those two uh, thieves who are beside him. Uh, one, of course, is speaking in condescension and judgment, but the other has a sort of openness and willingness and hopefulness about Jesus and Jesus concludes with, today you will be with me in paradise. Right? Today you will be with me in paradise. So we don't get a lot of particulars, but, but whatever happens to us when we die, it, it means we're with Jesus in paradise, right? We're, we're moving into this other stage, this alternate world, this alternate reality, where we're with Jesus, where we're with God. I, I think often about Romans 8, where Paul says there's nowhere we can go. We're at, we, there's no depth, there's no, there's no height, there's nowhere we can go. Not even death itself can separate us from God. So Paul describes those who have died as being asleep in death. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. There's some space after we die for those who have died in Christ. Then verse 16, you should know this word. The Greek word is parousia. This means the coming of the Lord. It's a really important word, right? So this is one of the places where Paul describes the coming of the Lord, right? That phrase, how will it be when Jesus comes again? 
Paul, of course, offers these, uh, these wonderful visuals, right? There will be the archangel's call. There will be a sound of a trumpet. There will be clouds in the sky. I mean, you don't have to, to think hard to visualize the image that Paul has in mind. For some reason, when we read these verses, we sometimes sort of get caught up in this as if though this is something that's new or unique or different or strange or radical. But I would remind you that the scene that Paul describes here is not so different from other scenes in the Bible, right? You can think about the Old Testament scenes where God reveals himself like in the burning bush, right? The fire by day and the cloud by night, right? When God comes in sort of glorious majesty. You might think about the Christmas story, which we'll remember here in a few weeks, where we have the angels speaking to Mary and Joseph. We have the angel chorus and the shepherds in the fields, right? The transfiguration where Jesus is lifted up with Moses and Elijah on the mountain. The ascension where Jesus rises again. So these scenes where, where God comes in glory... That's really not unique to Christ's second coming. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a pattern, right? That when God shows up on the scene, there's usually a celebration and a party. And that's what Paul imagines when Christ comes again. And then listen real clearly here to the mechanics of what happens next. Jesus comes with this great party, this great sound, this great announcement, and then Paul says, the dead in Christ will rise first. This is Paul answering the question about what has happened to those who have died. Well, they're asleep, they're in paradise, they're with God, but, but when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the resurrection of the faithful. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then all of us who are alive still will be caught up with them, will be lifted up and be transformed. And then in verse 17, we will be with the Lord forever. Now, I think the end of verse 17 is sort of the most important part. And so I might invite you to circle that or highlight that or put a star by that, right? All of these steps are leading to Paul's conclusion. Christ will come again in glory, the dead will be raised, and we will all be with the Lord forever. Now, I rather like this sort of summary that Paul offers us here in 1 Thessalonians. It's not particularly long or complicated. It's kind of a three-step process. You can compare it to other texts, like in 1 Corinthians 15. You can compare it, of course, to the book of Revelation, right? In fact, if you try to map out all of those different descriptions of the coming of the Lord on a big whiteboard or on a piece of paper, you will get lots of variations of this theme. And those variations have sometimes caused people great anxiety, right? What does it mean? Is there a rapture? Is there a premillennialism? Is there a postmillennialism? Is there judgment and dread? Honestly, Paul doesn't entertain most of those questions. He simplifies it in a sort of nice way, right? Christ will return, the dead will be raised, the living will be transformed, and we will be with the Lord forever. As I was preparing this week, I returned to a book called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. If you don't know N.T. Wright, you, you really should write, write down his name. I mean, he is probably the most respected contemporary biblical scholar. Uh, he's an Anglican, he was a bishop for a while, but most of his career he's been a professor. I mean, he's just wrote, written in great detail about these New Testament themes, particularly the resurrection of the dead and our future hope. And so he sort of summarizes it here, right? The ultimate destination is not just going to heaven when you die. That's not the language Paul uses at all. The ultimate destination is being transformed in the resurrection into the glorious likeness of Jesus Christ. But this is what Paul imagines. Whether you've already died or you're still alive, you're going to be lifted up and transformed. That Jesus, Jesus Christ was the first fruits of this new creation, that we will all one day be united with Jesus in this permanent final victory that is the resurrection.
I'll confess to you that most Methodists have not usually gotten super anxious about those details. You may have worshipped at a church or been a part of a church tradition where there is a lot of fascination and interest with these themes, but that typically hasn't been our way of approaching it. We haven't gotten caught up real detailed about millennialism, post-pre, whatever the case may be. We tend to focus on this good news, right? That one day, whether you die before Christ comes or Christ comes while you're still alive, one day we will be lifted up and transformed in the likeness of Christ, and we will be with God forever. As I was preparing, I return to uh, this last verse as our conclusion today. So Paul says, if all of these things are true, the things that he's just taught and said, if all of these things are true, then what should our conclusion be? Well, Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. Now, I want you to hear how, how differently that is phrased than sometimes these, uh, these lessons have been taught. Paul doesn't say you ought to threaten people into believing with these words. Paul doesn't say you ought to read long and complicated book series that scare children with these words, right? Or watch the movies that go with them. Paul's vision for the coming of Christ and for the end of time is a hopeful vision, right? It's good news. The dead will be raised, we will be lifted up, we'll be transformed, and we will be with the Lord forever. There's nothing meant to scare someone or to make someone anxious. The, the, the person I've read most about this is a guy named Jürgen Moltmann. He's German. He's up in his 90s now. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann, he has this sort of description. He's known as the theologian of hope, uh, which is a wonderful title, the theologian of hope. And so he's written a ton about what we can hope for in the, in the end of the time and the, the next life to come. This is sort of a long quote, but I, but I wanted you to hear his expression of it. He says, the ultimate reason for our hope is not to be found at all in what we want, wish for, or wait for. The ultimate reason is that we are wanted and wished for and waited for. What is it that awaits us? Does anything await us at all, or are we all alone? Whenever we base our hope and trust on the divine mystery, we feel deep down in our hearts that there is someone who is waiting for you. Hoping for you, believes in you. We are waited for just at the prodigal son and the parable is waited for by his father, were accepted and received as a mother takes her children into her arms and comforts them. And hear this last line. God is our last hope because we are God's first love. God is our last hope because we are God's first love. We have throughout the Scriptures testimonies to God coming to humanity for the sake of their salvation beginning in creation, through the work of, of Abraham and Israel, through the priests and the prophets, of course, through the story of Jesus and his resurrection, through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is fundamental to God's character, that God comes to us because God seeks us out, loves us, longs to be with us, and saves us. So when we talk about the end of time, when we talk about the resurrection of the dead, we're just talking about another chapter in this story of God's coming to us. God is our last hope because we are God's first love. It is God's love that motivates God to come to us and save us for the sake of eternity. Now, in the Barbie movie, we'll return there as we close today, as she goes through these trials and tribulations, learning what humanity has to deal with, trying to decide if she wants to be human or wants to remain a toy, uh, she, she, she comes to this quote. She says, All of life is change, and that is terrifying. So all of life is change, and that is terrifying. 
Now, on the one hand, we're sort of sympathetic to that realization, right? All of life is changed from your birth to your growing up to your growing into adulthood to building relationships to aging eventually to death. All of life is change. And Barbie says, that's terrifying. We, we might say that, that Barbie is half right. All of life is change. We're constantly being transformed throughout our life, changing throughout our life. Even in our dying, we are being transformed. And finally, in our resurrection with Jesus Christ, we are being transformed. All of life is change. But it's not terrifying. Because the change in our life is marked by this hope that God loves us and longs to be with us in this life, in our death, and in the life to come. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks for the testimony of Scripture and for the reminders of hope that our lives are shaped by a faith and a confidence that goes far beyond this world. Today, God, and throughout this series, we have given thanks for those who came before us, those who have died in Christ. We continue to grieve their passing and mourn our losses, and yet we pray and worship with confidence that they are with you in paradise and that they await with all of us your final victory. So give us courage to face the future unafraid, that we would live according to this light and this good news, shaped and marked by your love. All these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.